0: Hey guys welcome back. Um, Today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Stokes um, about COVID. Um, He works in a COVID
1: clinic. Okay, so we'll start off with our first question. Um, Dr. Stokes, can you explain to everyone what color we are in as Placer County residents and what that color means for what we can do?
2: So right now Placer County is in a purple tier which is the highest percentage of community transmission i believe it's like greater than seven or eight percent uh transmission in the community um so what does that mean compared to where we were six months ago which which in which we were kind of set up as a we were in a shelter in place status and only essential essential uh, businesses were open, we can still, a lot of businesses that are deemed somewhat non-essential can still be open, even in purple tier with widespread community widespread community spread of COVID. Um, most of them require outdoor activities like your restaurants and movie theaters and things of that nature. Um, as far as I know, the only real business that has been you know, significantly impacted and shut down would be your bars and breweries. Um, they are closed even with no, no outdoor options at this time. And of course, we're still maintaining um, a mask mandate um, and social distancing. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting
0: so when do you think we as Pine Hills um, should go to school back in person?
2: Well, I think um, even in, while where we are in a purple tier right now and not having a tier worse than purple, we're actually in kind of a surge on, on top of a surge because of um, the holidays. But given the structure of the school and the size of the school, and the safety protocols that we have, um, right now it's safe to go back to school. Um, You know, obviously we have to remain vigilant and we have to continue to, you know, adhere to our safety protocols and and you know socially distant at school and make sure we wear masks and make sure no one comes to school sick and if at any point in time there's a significant exposure we would need to go through the work that needs to be done to rule out any significant illnesses getting into any cohort uh, but barring that happening um, right now with everything as it is even with higher community spread rates it's still safe to go back to school yeah that's good to hear
1: that's always good to hear okay so next question how long does it take to see the effects of COVID?
2: so usually the incubation period is around 10 to 14 days that's one of the reasons that we have our quarantines set at those Uh, Times duration of time. Most experts now feel that it's probably more along the lines of 10 days. Not everyone has the same amount of symptoms. And so sometimes it's really hard to determine um, if patients are actually symptomatic or not. Um, But most patients will develop Symptoms, typical upper respiratory symptoms within 10 to 14 days of a significant exposure if they contract the virus. Um, The symptoms are going to be anywhere. They can include runny nose, sore throat, uh, sinus congestion, headaches, uh, fevers, chills, muscle aches, um, cough, shortness of breath, chest pain in some patients they develop abdominal pain with diarrhea and vomiting and uh, one of the things that's actually very pathognomonic meaning it's pretty specific to covid is the loss of taste or smell yeah i've heard about that one that one sounds scary yeah that's interesting a lot of times, though, as scary as it sounds, what we're learning is that that is a temporary symptom, just like the headaches and the fevers, although it can last a little bit longer. Most patients that have that symptom actually recover fully, and those, those uh, senses come back.
0: So wait, do some people like, like still not have the ability to taste after like Recovered.
2: There have been reported cases of this, but keep in mind, we've really only been able to follow, uh, you know, COVID now for six to 10, six months, eight months, 10 months, depending on how how far back you're looking and, and, and where in the world you're looking and what patients you're looking at. Um, but, you know, COVID really didn't become... Uh, on didn't really get on the United States radar until late February and, March, and and early March, and then the full effects of it really didn't kick in until April.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, how close do you think we are to a vaccine?
2: Well, we're very close to a vaccine. Um, you know, um, Pfizer and Moderna um, have both applied for FDA emergency use approval. As far as I know, Pfizer is very close to being approved. Um, As the latest that I am aware of, State of California um, will get 327,000 doses of that vaccine in the first go around. And we expect that the state and the public health departments will give us instructions on uh, how this will be dispensed um, and that should be happening in the hopefully in the last two weeks of December.
0: Um, how do you, how do you think it's going to be dispensed?
2: Well, right now it sounds like for sure the first wave of vaccines will go to healthcare workers, and I would imagine also other essential workers that are on the front lines dealing with um, potentially COVID positive patients. Um, and then I know today there was a, uh, a meeting with regards to patients who live in nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities, um, how they will fall within the hierarchy of getting the vaccine because they are at particularly high risk. Given those situations, they, the flip side to that is, is that most vaccines are less effective the older you are. So most of these patients are very old um, and in these situations, but I still don't think that that's going to keep from um, keeping them at the top of the list for getting the vaccine.
1: Yeah. So um, kind of sticking on the vaccine topic, uh, do you think the vaccine is going to be mandatory for like our country or school or state or et cetera?
2: No, I don't see how they could make a vaccine mandatory, especially in, in, in our country. Um,
0: what about our school?
2: In school systems, we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Um, certain vaccines are mandatory, but like at school, they don't require that you have an influenza vaccine. And once COVID, is vaccinate, once we get to a situation where the vaccine is readily available and we've developed um, a herd immunity because of that, then COVID will be very similar to the way we deal with flu or influenza down the road. And um, we'll just have to wait and see how health departments want to handle that. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't uh required it just it really depends on how uh readily used the vaccine is and how people um how many people actually do go and get vaccinated.
0: Yeah good point. Um so moving on from the vaccine topic. What is it like working in a COVID clinic?
2: Well um when we opened our COVID clinic in March and April, it was kind of like building a plane while you're flying it. We didn't know a lot about the virus yet. We didn't, um, at that time, we were very, very short on uh, protective gear for our staff. And, um, you know, it was a almost like a day-to-day, at first, it was like an hour-to-hour update on what needed to be done to safely identify and and try and treat these patients and and keep them from exposing other patients as well as staff members. Um, But now that we've been doing it and we have a lot more data, our COVID clinic is very, very uh, kind of, you know, uh, pretty straightforward, pretty easy to run. Um, We're very, very busy right now, Um, but our protocols for managing, These patients are pretty standard, uh, which is important because it's very important to follow safety protocols and that keeps everyone safe, including patients and including our staff, which which will include our nurses, our MAs, and our physicians that work down there. And it maintains a high level of care for our patients that come through there who, uh, some are, are are simply being followed for a little while uh, and they don't get particularly sick and others get really, really sick and require a lot of extra help and uh, some actually wind up in the hospital in serious condition. Hmm.
1: Yeah, so like working in a COVID clinic, do you see someone with COVID like on a daily basis or is it more spread out?
2: No, uh, I see, I see, uh, well, let's put it this way. I see someone with COVID every day, for sure. Um, Now, it depends on the level of what we do. We have many different levels at which we treat a lot of these patients. Um, A lot of it is done by just constant phone contact. Many of our patients who we designate our COVID patients as just having either COVID, which is kind of more of the upper respiratory infection and then we have a, a further delineation of patients that have developed COVID pneumonia, which is more of a lower respiratory infection, and these patients are the ones that are get really, really sick. Our, our regular COVID patients we may follow for you know we may call them every day they all we, we teach them how to keep track of their oxygen, we give them the tools to, to, to keep track of their oxygen we, we teach them how to keep track of how they're breathing and, and what their pulse rate is like so that they can give us meaningful information when we call them and see how they're doing. And most of them we follow for maybe three, four, five days. And if they're doing fine then and they start to improve, then we will release them back to their regular doctor. But the COVID pneumonia patients, we actually are in touch with these patients twice a day. Um, and if they're starting to show signs of getting worse, we actually will bring them into our clinic um, and physically examine them and potentially do further testing on them. The clinic also serves as a situation in which patients who may be what we call a PUI, which is a patient under investigation, uh, can be evaluated. So a patient under investigation is a patient who is Uh, has symptoms potentially of COVID, but we don't have a confirmation that they have COVID yet because they're either test, they're either waiting to get tested or their test results aren't back, but we need to see them right away um, and we don't know what their test result is. So that's another thing that we also do in that clinic. The clinic also serves to um, allow other service lines to manage their patients. Our pediatric colleagues will see their pediatric patients down there, and we also have ophthalmology and allergy in my facility, and it's set up so that if, if they have patients that absolutely need to be seen, they can see them down there. But a lot of these patients that are seen um, in allergy and um, ophthalmology, unless it's an emergency. Um, they can actually be uh rescheduled with their specialist after their covid symptoms are gone which is usually anywhere like we said 10 to 14 days
0: mhm so how do you feel about seeing someone with covid almost every day
2: um you know the nice thing about covid uh you know working in a covid clinic is i know exactly where my enemy is and that's right in front of me so um you just have to remain vigilant. I, don't, I think that most physicians, COVID is just another infectious disease. Um, and we know how to deal with those. We know how to protect ourselves against them. We know how to protect ourselves against this disease. And so it's really, you know, just doing what we already know how to do. Uh, I think in the beginning, it was a little bit more of a challenge because we didn't exactly know how it was transmitted yet. And so, you know, at the beginning it was, there was a lot of uneasiness with the physicians as far as what type of PPE was needed. And it, not just the physicians, but also the nurses in the hospital and the respiratory therapists in the hospital and people in the hospital that were taking care of these really sick patients and doing uh, procedures that really kind of um, were higher risk procedures because they aerosolized the virus. Um, There was a lot of anxiety there, but now that we have a better understanding and we have more supplies, it's really almost like business as usual for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what's allowing us to maintain a higher capacity for regular treatment as opposed to six months ago when pretty much everything was um, kind of shut down for a while. Mm -hmm. And we were just doing the stuff.
1: So uh, how do you prepare yourself like on a daily to go work in the COVID clinic? Can you like walk us through the cleaning process that you have to go through every day?
2: Sure. So in our in our COVID clinic, um, obviously we're seeing outpatient uh, patients. So we're not in the hospital. We don't do any high-risk procedures there um, that – um, significantly aerosolize the virus, but every patient that comes through there is either positive or suspected to be positive. So every person in the clinic, I mean, we're all wearing hospital scrubs. Um, we all, we, we, uh, we, we uh, wear the proper protective uh, equipment when we go in to examine patients, and when we clean, Um, The rooms, the exam rooms after uh, we see these patients, it's a complete wipe down um, with disinfectant, all flat surfaces, our stethoscopes, our face masks, um, our face shields and all that stuff. A lot of the rest of the uh, PPE is disposable, so we just get rid of that stuff. And then at the end of the day, our um, EVS crew or our um, environmental services crew comes through and does a super wipe down and is ultra clean at the end of each day, um, which is pretty standard now.
0: Mm -hmm. So new question. Do you think masks um, work as well as they are advertised?
2: So I definitely think masks help uh, prevent... Um, the spread and arguably, in some cases, the the contraction of the virus. Um, unfortunately, I think had this virus or had this pandemic occurred in a different year, a non-election year, um, I don't know that we would have had as much debate about masking as we have this year. However, if you look back at the Spanish flu of 1918, they had the exact same issues there um, you know there were a lot of people that did not believe in the masks and not only did they not believe that they were effective, but then there were also those that felt that it was a an, an, an it was an infringement on their rights um, as a, a a citizen and uh, you know anytime that this kind of stuff happens you're going to have that uh, that opinion but i don't think that there's any evidence to suggest that masks are ineffective at all i think it's um contrary to that um and otherwise we wouldn't really be doing it in the medical facility uh, mm-hmm. and wouldn't be requiring it so yeah right
1: so i know at least uh, for my family, a lot of people have had to switch and work from home um, to keep people safe. So how does that work with your job? Can you work from home?
2: Yeah, in fact, that was part of our strategy. Um, Luckily, um, you know, at least in my system of delivering healthcare, um, we were very, very prepared to transition to a high volume of virtual care, which included video visits as well as telephone visits. Um, And it was, like I said, it was part of our strategy to protect our workforce because at the beginning, like I said, we didn't have enough PPE or protective equipment to protect all of our staff. So by transitioning a lot of our care to virtual and allowing a lot of our physicians to work from home, it actually kept them safe. Uh, it kept them from getting infected. Um, initially, when the first virus started, we had about 80% of our workforce working virtually. And then we transitioned to about 50%. And now we're um, about flip that. We're about 80% in the office now to 30 to 20%. But we're not ever gonna go back to 100%, because we always want some of our workforce to remain virtual and to, re- to stay protected just in case there's an outbreak at work and we lose some of our workforce due to COVID infection.
0: Mm-hmm. So, now coming back to school, do you play a safety role for Pine Hills?
2: Um, at the beginning, um, when there were plans to start, you know, to there were considerations to start opening schools again. Um, yeah, there was a committee of of healthcare professionals that um, Mr. Freilich got together to kind of help uh, develop some safety protocols and and how we were going to keep the school safe, the teachers safe, the students safe, and then kind of get back to somewhat of a, a back to normal school. Um, th- all that stuff is kind of in place now and it's just kind of working as it normally should. But every once in a while, um, I will connect with um, Mr. Freilich and just kind of let him know what's going on in our community. Or if he has any specific questions about how to do uh, how to deal with certain things, sometimes he reaches out to me. And like I said, a lot of this is, uh, like the term we use is we're building the plane as we're flying it. We're just, we're learning as we go. and the one thing that you have to 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 do with this pandemic is to uh, be flexible, and you have to be willing to to uh, be flexible with what you're doing at, in your job and, and at the school, and be willing to to change based on the evidence that that um, our scientists and our uh, healthcare professionals are able to provide to us on a regular basis. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I know sports is a big question. It's on a lot of the kids' minds. Um, What what should we expect at Pine Hills regarding sports?
2: Well, I think, you know, obviously what's happened uh, the first half of this year, losing most of our sports, that's not surprising given the fact that we have no vaccine. We have really no means of protecting ourselves right now, and it's an unnecessary risk to – to, to try and even do anything like that. But um, we'll see how it goes through the winter um, and, and we'll see how it goes um, and how the vaccination is distributed. What I think the game changer will be once the vaccination is distributed and how many people um, decide to get vaccinated. That will help us on our path to herd immunity and once that happens then things can open up back to normal and even if we start to get back to less community spread we might be able to salvage some of our spring sports um and do that safely but we'll just have to wait and see like i said the thing you have to to be is you have to be flexible because this thing can change very quickly as soon as we start to let our guard down it'll come right back until we have herd immunity
0: Yeah. Um, so with the same thing applied
2: to like choir and band? Yes. Okay. I would imagine. I mean, I I think, um, you know, those, those types of activities right now would be a higher risk too because uh, of aerosolizing uh, the virus, the potential virus. But again, safety protocols are in place. And I think that those types of activities will be resumed once they are deemed to be safe. And I think right now is not the time, but we'll have to see how the, uh, how the spring uh, tr- uh, kind of translates for us. Okay. Well, that's, that's tough to hear. I bet right,
1: it is. so last week, uh, I wanna ask you about herd immunity because that's come up a couple of times just for the people that aren't sure what that is. Um, how close do you think we are to herd immunity?
2: Well, right now, we're nowhere close um, to herd immunity uh, through community transmission. If, but once we get a vaccine, um, our, the vaccine will help us develop herd immunity. Um, and hopefully that will be um, available to the, the general public by spring, if not sooner, depending on, on how, uh, the two, uh, how Moderna and how Pfizer can get their products out there to, to us. Um, but I think if we were to wait on natural herd immunity, it would take us a while. It would take us uh, a year or more mm-hmm. yeah. easily.
0: So that's also like depending on the vaccine pretty much.
2: But the vaccine, yeah, no, no, the vaccine will help us get there much sooner. Okay,
0: well that's, that's good. good. Especially because that's close. Um, well, thank you for letting us interview you and thanks for everyone tuning in. We'll see you guys next time.
2: Thanks for the opportunity.